0: chapter 2. This has been an incredible week with Conduit. If you're visiting, you may not know this, but we started as a Bible study, right? And we were a Bible study that actually studied the Bible, and we discovered that as you uh, get into the Bible that it seems to do something that the Bible says it will do, which is change you, grow you, and that's what began to happen in us. So, when we actually uh, were a missions department adding a church instead of a church adding a missions department. That started in April. But we hit the ground running uh, in April. But up until that point, we've been very busy all along. And I I wrote some notes so I didn't forget anything. But this week, okay, so a couple years ago, we had this vision to uh, build a home in Haiti. Now, keeping in mind, nickel and dime operation, Uh, mostly bass players and Starbucks baristas and me, Um, what could we do? We we had this idea we could build a a house in Haiti that would, um, actually a little corner of it is where the pastor will live, but it then will house um, women who have been uh, battered and abused. And Here's the thing in Haiti. Right now, the orphan system, 50% or more of the orphans are not uh, children like in Africa whose parents have died. They're children whose moms Who literally cannot afford to take care of them and so they give them up for adoption they leave them on orphanage steps and so part of what our vision was was to be a stopgap and to keep those babies from being given away and so this home one of the steps is it will provide a shelter for a mom who might have two or three kids has nowhere to go nowhere to turn and especially now in the current climate um, that was one purpose of the home another purpose is to house the feeding program. Now the problem is, is from the time we started this home till now the feeding program has completely outgrown it. So the new use for this, will be, it will become a medical clinic in the community uh, around us. And uh, we have ch- teams going, like Tamara's going to be going down and um, helping to get that thing staffed out. I-, I say all that to say that two years and about $65,000 later, this house is, I'm told, is finished this week. Um, we're going to have a ribbon cutting ceremony. <laughs> A ribbon, I guess you I don't know, do you cut ribbons in Hades? We're going to cut something. Tortillas, I don't know, something. Um, to, to sort of announce the, uh, the coming of this home. Uh, and that's just one. Now, in the meantime, it's so funny. God has an every, it sucks, about his ever every-increasing kingdom. Um, and so, not only we just got this thing finished, but we've already bought land that will now serve as a church slash school. Because 40% of the schools in Haiti are gone. And a lot of the kids now are actually still going to school, but their school is like a tent, Um, a tarp with four sticks, uh, and they're kind of meeting underneath that. Not a great environment. I mean, I know we complain about uh, our schools in America, but if you're meeting under a tarp and sticks, you know, we just we've got to help them. So uh, we've been sending the kids to school that are part of our feeding program, which I'm told is over 200 kids a day. That's what it is right now that we're feeding, as well as sending to school. Uh, and so, if we can then get them back into schools, and th- so this will help us a little bit even to control the education, to make sure they're getting a great education, that will be in this new property. We were able to wire the uh, twenty-seven thousand dollars and some change that was that went to purchase the land. Uh, the next step is we're going to build in Haiti. When you buy the land, then you build a wall around it, which basically signals to the community, a don't take my land and plant stuff on it, and b that we're going to build something here. And so. Uh, that's the first step that's happening right now. Um, ben Holton, by the way, if, you, if you're new here, ben, is, uh, ben has been a part of our church from, from the beginning, but has never been here because he's been in Haiti the whole time. And Ben is, you know what, he's just a white kid from Iowa <laughs> that said yes. And so he's been in Haiti for three months. He is actually coming home today because his grandfather is ill, and so he's coming home two weeks early, but not before the house was uh, finished. So he's coming home. Um, in fact, Mike, Mike and Kathy, his parents, who are part of our church, are on their way right now. So if, if you think about it, be praying for the Holton family during this time. The grandfather's taking a turn. They don't expect him to last very long. So Ben's coming home. All that to say, that was, uh, that was just in our building in Haiti this week. Uh, we had a women's conference in Haiti this week. Um, a girl named Victoria Bowling. Her husband is one of these evangelists that you know, God says, hey, go to Pakistan, like places where they'll cut your head off with something um, For about if you love Jesus. That's where he goes, like Sudan, Pakistan, I mean, Muslim-controlled countries, not, not messing around at all. His wife uh, also happens to be not afraid, and so she was down there this week uh, hosting, and we call it a women's conference because that's what we call them in America, but the, the women of this church in the community around it, full of single moms, full of women, um, just praying for them, teaching them uh, how to be godly moms, uh, the reports of miracles and all all this great stuff that's been going on this week from that. That happened this week. I say all that to say that when God said for us to start a church, you know, in some ways this is, not in some ways, in every way, man, all this is is a vehicle for God's spirit, to to get God's spirit to the nations and to the community in front of us. Um, And what we've been talking about the last four weeks are the four tires on our vehicle, our four sort of building blocks that we didn't make up. They came right out of Scripture. For What would a church do? What would we be if, if, if God called us to get together and to gather? And it's in Acts 2, 42. By the way, I'm probably going to be sitting a lot today. I rode my bike for, uh, well, until it begged for mercy. Um, it's was, it was a lot of me on a little bike, but... Um, 30 miles. Now, I say ride, and it's, it's occurred to me of, of late that ride is way too passive of a word. It, it denotes like I'm sitting there while someone else is driving me. That is not at all what happened. I mean, I'm cranking it like a fat guy on a bike going uphill. You know what I mean? Not good. And I'm doing it by myself because it's kind of embarrassing. And, but, um, but I did that for 30 miles yesterday, and i got to tell you, like I'm not so much that my quads are sore, but I'm really aware of them right now. Like, very aware of my quads and among other things, um, <laughs> Acts two forty two. If anybody happens to have some uh, Ben Gay with them, just maybe leave that. We'll anoint me with that later. They devoted themselves, verse forty two, to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That's it. They didn't have any fancy consultants, any pencil-pushing goobs coming in and telling them how to do it. They just got together, and they did these four things. And they devoted themselves to them. And when you think about it in terms of what that looked like, is those are the four tires, the four foundational blocks, the four tires on the vehicle. And as long as those four tires were in balance, man, it's a smooth ride in the kingdom. Now, the tendency, though, is us, and I grew up in some of these circles, where you tend to have this pet doctrine that you plant your ministry on, and, and whether it's, you know, uh, prayer or whether it's, you know, healing or, and all those things are in scripture, but if they become a pet doctrine, that's all you're doing. I mean, it's going to A, shape your church, and then B, it's going to warp it. Just like your car, if you get one tire out of balance, man, it's an uncomfortable, it's a long ride to Minnesota when your car is pulling to the left. I've done this. It gets tiring after a while, and it begins to wear down on us because it's just pulling us in that direction. We want to make sure that our car is balanced with these four things, these four foundational principles. And again, it's great because it's in the Bible. We didn't have to make it up. We didn't have to have a consultant. We just do what they did, and then look what happened. This is what I love about it because these four things they devoted themselves to, and then this is the results of it. It says, everyone was filled with awe And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All of the believers were together, had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved when you devote yourself as a body of believers, as a, a branch on the family tree of Christ to these four things, that's the result of it. It's amazing. You don't have to make it happen in your flesh or force it to happen. This is just a natural happening. It's an outgrowth of it. In, it, in verse 43, it says that they were all filled with awe and many miraculous signs, wonders happened in their midst. Now, The world I grew up in, we'd skip right to the signs and wonders, right? Because those are the good ones, the big ticket things. But if you do that, which is great, by the way, Jesus is in the miracle business. He just is. He's been in it since he started. But you skip over the part of they were in awe. In fact, King James says that great fear came upon them. Now, when you see the word fear in the New Testament, there's an interesting thing that happens in America. We tend to say Oh, that doesn't mean that he, they were afraid. It just means that they really liked him. Or we, we wash that word. We put a bucket of water on it and and rinse it out before we use it. Now understand that it doesn't mean that you were afraid like you were in Saul. Four. Do you know what I mean? Like it doesn't. It isn't the kind of fear like you've got a serial killer breathing down your neck. Not that kind of fear. But it's also. It doesn't mean that they weren't, they didn't experience some sort of awe and wonder in their life where they knew that this, like, if you, has anybody been to the Grand Canyon? Been any place, like, amazing? And you stand on the edge of it, and there's this sort of fear-slash-wonder-slash-amazement-slash-overwhelming-everything-don't-fall-into-it kind of feeling that you get when you're standing there because it's, you're in awe of it. And I think what's happened with, with me anyway is that in the 80s, 90s of Christianity, we kind of went for the Jesus is my BFF thing. Do you know what I mean? And, and that's fine because Jesus did say, I no longer call you servants, but you're my friends. But understand this our God cannot be simpled, singled out and narrowed down to one metaphor. He is our friend, that's true. He's also our Father. He's also the God of the universe. He's also, it says, our husband. It's all these metaphors is God trying to paint a picture here and there for us that we can try to get our mind wrapped around how grand that he is. But let's not forget, like when I hung out my best buddies growing up, Troy Covey, Marcus Gonzalez, man, we, we wreaked havoc on Superior, Nebraska. And I loved these guys. And I never once felt awe or wonder around them. Because they're my friends, and that was a love that I had for them. You know what I'm saying? But if you're around your father, you might love him, but it's a different kind of love. There's a a reverence, and many of us don't have a good father figure in our lives to look back on and say, like we don't resonate exactly with it, but there's a love if you grew up in a home with an amazing father. You know that there is a reverence, and there's a little bit of fear because there's a little bit of danger, but there's also a great overwhelming love on top of it. They were in awe of God. Unfortunately in America, and I say in America because I've been around the world a little bit, and they don't seem to have this problem, but we've lost our awe of God. When, when we're in church and we, we worship Him, we say to God, and we sing it sometimes, Oh Lord, I worship you. And that would be the exact ex- equivalent of me going to my wife and say, Shannon, I hug you. I hug you. Well, that's ridiculous, right? Now, we don't think of it as ridiculous. By the way, I'm here, so... Hi, honey. Hi. Um, and we say that even about, like, you know, we, Lord, I glorify you. But what does that mean exactly? To worship the Lord, to be in awe of him so much that we naturally want to worship him. Not just say, I worship you, but actually worship you, and I think it actually has to start with a recognition that, man, he's God, holy cow, like, amazing, and the things that we, all around us, that we take for granted, in fact, Paul said that the God of this world, Satan, what he wants to do is blind us to the glory of God that's all around us, and here's the thing, it is, it's everywhere, and you know you've been to the. We've talked about the Grand Canyon. I just said that. I was at Murchison Falls in Uganda, and it was literally like you're standing at the edge of this waterfall that's almost like God flushed his toilet and boom, just unleashed swimming pools full of water over, the, and it's just amazing. And you you have nothing. You're just in awe. But let's say you haven't been to Murchison Falls in Uganda or the Grand Canyon. I mean, right now you're sitting on. A wonder of God. I know you thought, well, man, I'm in a high school cafeteria. Look, this thing right here, this chair, this chair is made of the glory and the wonder of God. The building blocks of us, okay? I tried to explain this to my eight year old on the way in to make sure that I was getting it right so that it was understandable. I'm not 100% sure that it will be, so if you just humor me. This thing right here, your table, the, the, the chair that you're sitting on and the butt that is sitting on it are all made of essentially the same thing, of atoms. Atoms are a little small to get our mind wrapped around, Infin- infinitely small. So small that if we were to blow up an atom, the building blocks of everything, to the size of not just this room, but including everything around that you see, Okay, now imagine, this is a giant, huge ball at this point, kind of. And that's what you're made of. At the center and the core of that atom that you're made of would be the nucleus. The nucleus in this room, this giant cavernous place, at that point, blown up that large, would be the size of a fly. Find it in the middle somewhere. Or if you want to, just for the purposes of entertainment and edification. Let's blow up the nucleus now to the size of a marble, okay? The outer limits of the atom where the electrons are flying around, you'd have to drive all the way to the Kroger in Spring Hill to find the electrons two miles away, but you wouldn't be able to find it because it'd still be too small to see, even with the nucleus being that small. So an atom is made up of a, you're like, man, this is science class. I totally went to the wrong church. An atom is made up of The nucleus, the middle of it, which is made up of protons and neutrons. And those protons are charged electrically with a positive charge. Is that right, Donna? Donna's our biology teacher. Positive charges in the middle. And what it does is it holds together these electrons that are flying around it. So if you've got one proton in the middle, that's hydrogen. And one proton will then mean one electron flying around the side of it. So you've got right now inside of you billions and billions of those flying around. You've got the little nucleus with the proton and the neutron and the electron flying around it, creating the illusion of a solid surface. Those electrons are negatively charged. And when a negative charge comes in contact with a negative charge, they repel each other. So your buttocks are not actually seated on that chair, that seat. They're hovering one hundred millionth of a centimeter above it, which is about as intimate and close as atoms will allow themselves to be with each other. If those negative charges weren't there, you would pass right through it. Interesting, by the way, I always wondered if that's why Jesus was able to walk through walls and stuff after his resurrection. whole other sermon. But in that miracle right now is this, you have nothing but empty space. 95% of you is empty space, even though it doesn't appear that way. Because the electron, remember, it's two miles away, just the size of a marble with our little nucleus right here. Two miles away is the electron, and it is surrounding it. And of course, growing up, there was this inaccurate picture that's been durable nonetheless, of it kind of orbiting... Like it's a universe thing, like the sun orbit, or the earth orbits the sun. It's not like that at all. We know now that it's more like the blades of a fan that are anywhere and everywhere at the same time, with one notable difference. The blades of a fan only appear to be anywhere and everywhere. The electron is. It's everywhere and nowhere at the same time, and it creates this literally immediate and perfect circle that kind of looks more like a tennis ball than it does this, like a smooth ball that creates who you and I are. And in the miracle of that is God, 90, again, 90 95%, maybe 99%, depending on which scientist you read, of you is empty space that's filled by something. In fact, right now, in the, in the mountains of Switzerland, is an organization called CERN that has spent billions of dollars To just try to figure out, what is this universe even made of? When you look into space, what's it made of? It's got to be made of something. And if you're going to build a universe like you were God, it'd be interesting because you'd want to, you'd have to, start with something infinitely small. You'd have to take up everything around us. Your dog, the speakers, Mike Pappas, and squeeze it all into an infinitely small space, smaller than the smallest of atoms. And you'd want to step back. The problem is you wouldn't be able to step anywhere because there is nowhere. To a safe place to observe this because it's going to be a big explosion. When God said, light be, and the universe became. What we know now is that when he said that, there are literally hundreds of billions, trillions of miles of what appears to be empty space. In fact, they say 99% of the universe is an empty space. And what CERN is doing, now keeping in mind, we can be bitter about CERN and all the billions of dollars, but they did actually bring us the internet, not Al Gore. So thanks to them for that. But what they've been working on now, spending billions of dollars on is trying to figure out, because right now what they can't figure out is the universe seems to be expanding, it seems to be contracting, no one really knows, but what they do know is there is some force out there that is keeping the universe from imploding in on itself. Billions of dollars, they built a tunnel that is 17 miles around, or as I like to call it, two laps on the bike, anyway, 17 miles around so that they can try to get these atoms to smash into each other, to try to figure out What this thing is that was dubbed in the 90s, by the way, the God particle. Scientists don't like to call it the God particle because it is an admission that there might be a God. They like to call it the Higgs-Boson, you know, the uh, Winky thing. There's There's all kinds of weird names they've got for them. But what they don't like calling it is the God particle. Even though they're spending billions of dollars trying to figure out what it is, trying to figure out what it is, that expands through the whole universe, this mysterious force that stretches and encompasses everything and holds it all together. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, that Jesus Christ holds all things together. David would write in Psalms that the universe tells of his glory. The universe around us speaks of his glory. Romans 1 would tell us that, yeah, there would be people that would exchange the truth for a lie and refuse to admit, accept the truth. And we've, in our world, refused to accept it to the tune of about $10 billion so far with CERN because we want to figure it out, what it is that holds us all together. What is it that, when Isaiah said that the whole earth we sang it this morning is filled with His glory, we have the we have right in front of us the glory of God in a dumb little chair in a high school cafeteria that is miraculous, but we are blinded to it because we have the God of this world that would choose to blind us to the glory of God that is around us, and and the temptation and look, we're going to talk about signs and wonders. But our temptation would be to focus on the spectacular, on the sensational, and miss the supernatural that's happening all around us. The temptation is to miss that when Darren sits on this chair with all of my 200-plus pounds, that I don't pass through it because God is keeping it all together. The core of every atom, every nucleus of every atom... You've got positive protons hanging out together, and it shouldn't work. They're supposed to repel each other. Put two ends of north magnets together or south magnets together, and they repel each other. Those protons are not supposed to do that, and scientists cannot figure it out. They have started in 1910. And have spent billions of dollars trying to figure out what is it forced that doesn't seem to match anything. And I'm telling you, it's Colossians chapter one. It's Jesus Christ who holds it all together. We ought to live every day in awe and in wonder just on the creation itself that surrounds us, just in the trees. And and we don't have to be tree huggers and granola eaters. Not that I'm anti, kind of anti granola, but I love trees. Just in that alone, we ought to be full of awe and of wonder. But Jesus would go further and say that he himself, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that when we're looking for the glory of God, that is what we are there to worship to begin with. That is what gives us awe. It's what makes us and wires you and I to want to worship him. Because when you acknowledge it, and just like in Romans, it says our temptation is to worship the creation instead of the creator. The fact that we're spending billions of dollars trying to figure out what this particle is instead of spending billions of dollars worshiping the creator by feeding his creation. I mean, are you kidding me? You know how much we could have accomplished in Africa or Indonesia or even right in our own country with those billions of dollars if they were spent worshiping the Creator by serving and clothing and feeding and educating His children? We're worshiping, they're worshiping the creation and not the Creator. But look what it says in Hebrews 1. Not only is the glory of God in your cafeteria chair, in the Grand Canyon, in your own human body, but it's in Jesus Himself. In fact, in verse, let's start with verse 2. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. It, it, it's the writer of Hebrews saying that, hey, in the Old Testament, in the old days, it was these prophets that spoke to us. And they spoke to his, God spoke to us through that. And now he says, now, though, it's different, because now I'm going to speak to you through my son. In fact, when you go to Spain, you speak Spanish, right? You, you, you go to Mexico, you speak Spanish. You go to French, you speak Frenchish. You know, we speak languages, but when God speaks to us, he's speaking to us in, well, sunish. He's speaking to us in Jesus, in that language of what Jesus is. He says, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. When I talk about the glory of God, and if you've grown up like I have, your tendency would be to say the glory of God is, maybe you got the old covenant picture, the big, like the smoke and the lava and the billows and the earthquakes, the big ticket stuff. Or maybe you've grown up like, like I did and you, you think glory of God and it's we called it the Shekinah glory where you, you'd see a haze. It might just be because we'd been sitting in church for six hours and our, our eyes were hazy, but for whatever reason, somebody said they saw a haze. We're looking for those tangible signs. We're looking like, man, I want to be just so full of God that I'm going to walk around. And I actually, in Bible college, you know, this was something we ascribed to, that we could walk around and people would just repent and fall out under the power of God and the, the glory all over us. But he's telling us that the glory of God is made the picture of it in Jesus If I'm looking for what the glory of God would look like in Thompson Station or Franklin or the whole Nashville area, Spring Hill area, I'm looking for what the glory would look like, I just have to look at Jesus. And the fact of the matter is, is when Jesus walked around, people didn't just fall over and repent right in front of him. Most of them didn't even recognize who he was. Jesus would be taken to the desert for 40 days. To be tempted, and he prayed, and he was, came back, and he's hungry, and what better place to go when you're hungry than to a wedding party? Lots of free food. So he kind of crashes this wedding. I don't know that he crashed it because his mom was there. This is John, I think, chapter 2. Jesus shows up there out of wine. Mary comes to Jesus. She goes to the, the wedding party, and they say, she says, do whatever they say, and basically what Jesus did in that moment in John chapter 2 was he made 150 gallons more of the finest wine and made, a, trust me, a bunch, a bunch of drunk people more drunk. It, it, it's, it defies that we don't, that doesn't work well in our society in our, or at least in our thought process, but that's what he did. And it says that by this, this first miracle was his glory revealed. Now, theological arguments aside, what happened was Jesus went into a bunch of folks who knew they weren't holy, who were full of sin in their lives, and they weren't uncomfortable around him. In fact, Jesus had this amazing ability to make unholy people that knew they were unholy feel okay about themselves and feel okay about what Jesus was doing in their lives. And those that felt they were holy, the Pharisees and the religious people who had it all right, man, they felt really uncomfortable around him. But I think that in this vignette of Jesus coming to us, to these people at this wedding, and just doing this miracle, was just saying, look, in this lack, I'm here for you. I'm not here to make you feel bummed out and bad about yourself and, and beat down, but I'm here to just love you. You see, God's glory in Jesus, which Hebrews tells us his glory was manifest, which means that it was poured through him was made manifest in the goodness of Jesus, in the goodness of God. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. When Moses in Exodus chapter 33 said, God, show me your glory. He's like, I need some proof. I need you to throw me a bone, God. Show me your glory. Exodus 33, God says, I will make my goodness pass before you it was God's goodness his kindness that is his glory and if I'm looking for his glory the thing that would cause me to want to worship him to be in awe of him I'll find it in his goodness and in his kindness First Chronicles 16, the, taberno, the, the temple is finished and David brings all the men together and they're going to worship God and his glory is filling the temple. And it says that they fell down on their faces and they worshiped him by singing, your goodness, God, is forever. Your kindness, your mercy endures forever. It's the song of David. A song, by the way, that Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, depending on your pronunciation. Habakkuk 2 tells us... Uh, Well, no, I'm sorry. Jeremiah 33 tells us that that song will be restored. The song of his goodness. We want to see the glory of God. We should start singing songs of his goodness. Those songs that are prophesied that would would be restored, would be back in our world, in our own modern day songs. The goodness of God. It's his goodness that is the glory of God. And when we encounter the goodness of God, the glory of God in his kindness, and over and over and over again, we see the picture of God in Jesus. We see that he healed the sick, that he raised the dead. But man, he just loved on some sinners. He loved on some folks that were unlovable, that were untouchable, that were undesirable. And it was that goodness the radiance of God manifest in him. That's a God worth worshiping. That's a God worth being in awe of. Now, what does the worship look like? Our tendency would be to say, well, we sing. And, And of course that's a part of it. I mean, David wrote the book of Psalms for crying out loud, right? All these songs... Songs are an integral part of our worship to him. But they're not it. They're not completely it. There are other ways that we bring worship to the Lord. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 6. There are other things that we do that bring glory to God. One of them, while you're at 1 Corinthians 6, I'll tell you about it, is found in Matthew chapter 6. He says, let your light shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify God when we are serving the least of these brothers of mine as Jesus referred to them man, we're we're worshiping the Lord we are bringing glory we are talking about how awesome he is showing how awesome he is through ourselves bringing glory to him through our good works it's one way to worship that doesn't involve singing Another way to worship that doesn't involve singing is 1 Corinthians 6, chapter 6, verse 20. Paul is talking about some of the sinful things that are going on in this community with the Corinthians. In verse 18, he says, "...to flee sexual immorality." All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor, Amplified version says, honor, bring glory to God with your body. Gang, when you are abstaining from those sins that would so easily beset us, guys, girls, whomever. Think of it as not just a sacrifice. I'm I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that ever again, starting right now. It's an act of worship to the Lord that I'm throwing aside these things that I can honor God. I can glorify God, worship God with my body by what I abstain from doing, by what I don't let myself, the roads I don't go down, if I don't let myself go into that, young couples or, I mean, heck, old couples, you know, if you, we live in a society where, you know, some of you guys have had to start over. And we tell you what, those, those things that God said, flee fornication, those still apply today. He, he didn't say that because he wanted to be a giant buzzkill and ruin your funnies. Trying to protect you, to keep you from your spirit getting connected to another spirit that it ought not to be. But what he says ultimately is this, I can worship God by walking away from it. It's an honor to the Lord. It's an honor to the Lord when we're doing good works. It's an honor to the Lord when we're singing to him. And it's a reminder to us this morning, hopefully you're reminded. Hopefully your eyes are opened this morning to the glory of God that is all around us. Because if we want to see the signs and the wonders, and you hear that all the time, why don't we see those in America? Why don't... Maybe it's because we've lost our wonder and our awe of God. The, some people have described the fear of the Lord as the constant awareness of the thereness of God. Maybe we've lost that. Maybe because we've came to church, maybe not just here, but wherever you've been in the pastor church, maybe we've just come expecting the, the donuts and the coffee and we get to sing. But what if we're coming expecting to encounter the glory of God? The wonder and the awe of the glory of God in our lives, in you and in I, the constant awareness of the thereness of God. The thereness of God in a chair, the thereness of God in a book, the thereness of God in the person sitting to the left or to the right of you, the thereness of God in the worship that we're bringing to Him, the constant awareness of the thereness of God. Maybe we've lost that. And that's why the signs and wonders that we so desire haven't come because we're seeking signs and wonders, we're not seeking God. And we're going to talk about that next week, because signs and wonders are there. Don't get me wrong; I've called them the shock and awe campaign for God's ground war. Okay, you guys are the the, on the ground. We're all on the ground. God occasionally, like Mark Mark Bowling, the guy I talked about a little bit ago, if you're in Sudan and you're saying, "Hey, Allah is not God," and Jehovah is, Yahweh is God. Let me tell you what, sometimes you need someone to get up from a wheelchair, okay? Because otherwise, people want to cut your head off. God sends that in. Wham! Shock and awe. But if we're seeking the shock and awe, we begin to worship His creation. Miracles are His creation. He is God. Miracles are just the gravy on a really great bowl of potatoes. God. Man, how southern. Did I just step into the south? kind of hungry. That's the decoration that goes with it. God is who we're seeking and serving. I mean, I love it that my kids can get fascinated by some of the tricks that I can do. I love it that at two years old, they really thought that pulling my finger worked, okay? But if all they're doing is coming to me for the tricks that I can do, and not because of dad himself. It's, it's sort of a warped relationship. If all I'm doing is going to God so I can whew, put the slot machine down and see what comes out, that gets a little old in the relationship. We ought to come to him in awe and in wonder, knowing that I'm in my dad's house. Man, some things are just going to happen that are awesome while I'm there. But I'm not there to see the awesome. I'm there to spend time with dad, and everything else is just a fringe benefit. And my challenge to you this morning, my challenge to me, because I want you to know that in some ways I have absolutely no business standing up here and teaching this to you, because I've struggled with this in my own life, to to be. I mean, I talk about it, I get it intellectually, but I'm walking around and I don't live like I'm constantly aware of God being there. It's something I'm striving for, it's something that I desire, but I'm not there. But I challenge myself and I challenge you this morning to remember that God is who we worship That we don't need to just stand there and say, I worship you, Lord, I worship you, Lord, any more than I'm going to stand there and say, I hug you, Shannon, I hug you, Shannon. That my life needs to be a reflection of that worship through the abstaining from things. And believe me, there's a whole lot more. If you want a great thing to go study, go find out the different ways to worship God in the Bible that don't involve music, all kinds of them. But the challenge is that we live in a state of awe and of wonder that commands the worship. That when I'm abstaining from those things, that it, it's in, out of awe, it's out of reverence to God. And as I look around even our conduit church, what God is doing here, man, I live in constant awe of it. I live in awe of the fact that a guy named Ben Holton, I'm telling you, just a kid from Iowa that said, I'll go, I'll go to Haiti. He didn't have a job, I loved it. And said, so, you know, most guys, when we don't have jobs, we're going to all kinds of places to find jobs. He's, he's a victim of the economy and instead of just throwing in his hat He said, I'll just go to Haiti for three months and see what happens. We'll figure he still doesn't know what he's going to do when he gets back. But when I see that, and I see a young man that said yes to the Lord, I'm in awe of God that God could inspire someone like that to do that. I'm not in awe of Ben, I'm in awe of the God inside of Ben. I'm in awe that God has brought this together. Anybody that knows me knows that this wasn't in the plan. I had great plans. They just weren't God's plans. And it makes me in awe to think that God would do this. I'm in awe, not of me. Trust me. Trust me. You'd be more in awe of God if you knew me, that this is even possible right now. You'd be in awe of God if you went and met those kids in Haiti. You'd be in awe of God that these little kids that don't have As my dad would say, a pot to pee in, and in their case, quite literally. And how happy they are, and how full of joy they are. I'm in awe of God of that. It makes me want to worship him. And as Jeremy and and, and the, and the band come back, I would ask for us to just maybe unplug from the grid And maybe even to ask ourselves the question of okay, the band is going to sing, they're going to create an atmosphere, but maybe today your worshiping isn't singing. Maybe today your worship is saying, God, I repent. This thing that I'm battling with, I'm repenting of this and I'm turning around. I'm changing my mind. I'm going towards you. And in doing so, I'm going to honor and worship you. Your worship this morning might include going to the Lord's table. And reminding yourself of the glory of God through the sacrifice on the cross. Of his body broken, of the blood that was shed. And not just the sin that was covered at the cross, but the blood that is ongoing today that is in all of our lives in awe. Maybe that's where your worship is. Maybe your worship is in the word. Maybe your worship is on your face. But my encouragement today is that A, you remind yourself of the amazing wonder of God. From the Grand Canyon, to the chair that you're sitting on, to the people sitting around you, to the God inside of you, and just worship Him. It's the only proper response. I've heard it said that a God big enough to be understood is not big enough to be worshipped. Our God is not big enough to be understood. 7,931 scientists that work for CERN refuse to admit it, but our God is big enough to be understood. There's no budget large enough to understand our God. Of course, he's worthy of our praise. Of course, he's worthy of our worship. It's the proper response to it. So would you worship with me this morning, knowing that in his presence, this fullness of joy, if you're battling sorrow or depression in your life, man, get into the presence of the Lord. Father, we are um, in awe of you. Would you forgive us, God, for worshiping your creation more than you? Even the things that you've done, the miracles and the amazing things in our life, forgive us for worshiping and focusing on them and not focusing on you bring back that awe. Open our eyes, God, that have been blinded to the glory of God that is all around us, that we might worship you today. In Jesus' name.